Hi there. Welcome to Green Queen in Conversation, a podcast about the food and climate story. I'm Sonali Figueres, your host and the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen Media, where I lead all of our food and climate reporting. I'm excited to kick off this new podcast series exploring cultivated meat, a future food technology on a mission to produce animal protein sustainably. For the show's first season, we're talking to the titans of the industry, the OGs, if you will, and asking the hard questions about one of the most exciting food and climate innovations of our time. In this episode, I talked to George Pepu, the CEO of Vow Foods. George is one of the most compelling leaders in the cultivated meat space today. I love speaking to him because he thinks so differently about the industry compared to everyone else. And his vision for the future of food is so unique. This is evident in everything his company does, from the animals Vow is choosing to cultivate to how his team approaches branding and marketing. During our chat, we talk about how he thinks about the future of cultivated meat, that mammoth meatball unveil, why he's doing this and who he's doing it for, and whether cultivated meat will one day be a mass product. George is so utterly committed to what he's doing that when you're listening to him, it's hard not to believe that he's going to change the way we eat for the better. So here goes. Enjoy the show. Hi, George. Great to have you here. Thanks for being a guest on our podcast. Obviously, I've been watching everything you've been doing in the space, so I'm really excited to talk to you about cultivated meat and what are we doing and where are we going from here? I really want to start with this idea of exotic meats. I mean, you're, here you are working with zebra and alpaca and buffalo and crocodile cells. Why exotic meats? Why not, you know, the basics like beef or pork? Uh, it's a great question. It's one I get asked quite a lot. It's uh, The very short answer is I love eating meat. I eat meat now. Um, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. And when I think about how do I change the behavior of people like me, like my family, it's not going to be by making something which approximates the meat we eat today. That's a very, very hard sell for people that already have integrated meat into their diets and have no intention of changing that. And so then the question is, how do you change the behavior of a few billion meat eaters that have no interest in changing their diet? And I believe the way that we do that is we have to make foods that are better than the meat that we can get today. So tastier, more nutritious, offering functionality that animals can't. And so then the goal for us within the world of cultured meat is how do we identify the cells from across all of nature that are the cheapest to grow, the tastiest, the most nutritious and offer the best functionalities as food. The probability of those coming from animals that we traditionally consume is extremely low. And so from the very beginning, we've taken this approach of exploring nature, working across a range of different species, like many of the ones you mentioned, with the view of how do we see these cells as ingredients as part of future foods? I don't believe we're going to be thinking about meat and animals the way we do today in even 50 years. Instead, I think we're going to uh, view meat as branded products that may contain cells from multiple different species to achieve the qualities of those brands. Uh, and so that's really what we've been building up to by uh, building this cell library, exploring and trying to answer some foundational questions about why do some tell cells taste the way they do? Why do some cells have the nutrition they do? That's really, really interesting. I actually was interviewing um, uh, somebody in the plant-based seafood space today, and they had a very similar take around, you know, this idea that we need to create new formats, new products. So, so, I, so, so for you, you're really seeing a future where 
something, some kind of protein format that we could eat could have multiple animal cells in there. So, so the idea is not to just recreate crocodile. Not at all. So, and where, uh, one way that I think about this is if you went back 150 years ago and you're standing around in the 1880s and you try to grab someone off the street and you try to explain to them what a Cheerio is, when they've only ever bought and consumed grains as a simple transformation of one grain, trying to explain what a Cheerio is, how it's made, why you'd eat it would be impossible. I think the same thing is going to be true 50 years from now with meat, is we're going to think about meat and we're going to buy meat purely as branded products and whatever components we need to use to create the sensory experience or the, uh, whatever uh, functions that product provides, we'll use to do that that's not how we're going to view protein and how to view meat. We're going to view it as something which has um, a sensory experience and a reason to purchase it because you've had it before and because you know about it and have integrated it into your lifestyle. So that's actually quite a different mission than some of the other players in the space who are trying to recreate, let's say, a chicken breast. I would say also has been quite different and quite... Um, I was, uh, I was having a bit of a debate with someone online, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Uh, and their argument was with limited capital going into the space, why should any of it go towards weird stuff? And my argument is kind of the exact opposite, which is with limited capital going into the space is allocating, you know, 99% of it or 98% of it to replicating beef, chicken, pork, tuna, and salmon, the best way to change the behavior of a few billion people. I see what we're doing as a hedge against how behavior change is going to happen. Um, if we're right and everyone else is wrong, then it's going to be really matter that we exist. Um, but we can also be right alongside all the companies that are making beef, chicken and pork. And together we can be tackling different parts of that behavior change problem for different segments of consumers. Okay, so let me ask you a question then, a follow up. What do most people get wrong about cultivated meat? And, and as a follow-up about the science of cultivated meat? Oh, that's a really good question. I think there's a lot of general misinformation and misinterpretation about what it is technically. Um, there's a well-known skeptic um, who posts a lot and publishes a lot on this, a guy called Paul Wood from Melbourne, Australia, um, and I remember after Paul Wood popped up in some very critical articles, I reached out and we had a chat and um, he said something to me which uh, really stuck with me where he's like, oh, this is not a question of technical feasibility. The technology absolutely works. I've worked in large scale cell culture my whole career. And so I think there's a, there's a belief that even the large scale cell culture is fundamentally novel and fundamentally new technology. It's not. What we're really trying to do is take very well-established technology and do it at a larger scale, lower cost, and with less human labor and effort than it's ever been done before. And so there are certainly scientific challenges. There's not any foundational manufacturing or we're not trying to do anything which hasn't been done before in other cell types and other industries. Um, and so I think that's the main foundational misunderstanding. This is like crazy new frontier invention. There is a little bit of that, but that's not what this industry takes to get food on people's plates. That's really interesting. And yeah, I definitely know who you're referring to. And, and it's interesting because he's actually one of the board members for Cellular Agriculture Australia, I, I think. Absolutely. So, yes, he is. so it's so, it, so it's interesting that there are, you know, different opinions in the space, but why don't we, why don't we kind of bring it down to a really basic level? How would you explain cultivated meat to a six-year-old or an eight-year-old? 
Oh, that's a really good question. I was trying to explain this to my friend's four-year-old on the weekend and failed. So okay. I'm... Uh... I was going to say four-year-old because I have a four-year-old. And then I thought four-year-old <laughs> is a little bit of a, a high bar. I'm going to go with six-year-old to eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, with a four-year-old, I got about 30 seconds in and she got bored and started watching Bluey. So um, I did my best, but I failed. Um, <laughs> if it was a six to an eight-year-old, I would start by saying... Um, I'd start by saying the meat that you're eating is how animals grow. Um, and all we do is we take some parts of animals and we grow them outside of an animal, um, which is which is really as simple as you can get. And we feed, we feed the cells that we're growing, we feed the bits of the animal that we're growing, the things that they need directly to grow, the sugars, the salts, the amino acids, all the bits and pieces they need to grow. And then when we grow enough of them, we take those out and we put them on your plate. <laughs> um, that would be the simplest version of it. And I can uh, I can hear my process engineers screaming in pain from the side by not mentioning all of the details and the sterility requirements. But at its simplest, it's really just taking those cells that you'd find in meat and growing them outside of an animal. Absolutely. I mean, that does feel simple and accessible. And from what you're saying to the previous answer, you know, you're saying it's something that fundamentally the science we have it and yet it feels kind of like a new frontier to, to most people right <laughs> yes absolutely it's a very new way of thinking about food as um, I've spent a lot of my career working in food and agriculture and there is a there has been a global paradigm for such a long time that all of our food is some kind of agricultural product something that grows in a field that goes through some kind of conversion step um, and even our most frontier industrialization of animal agriculture is just taking a chicken or a, a cow or a pig out of a field and putting it in a shed or a multi-story building. But it's still this fundamental paradigm of there's an organism that we've identified and we grow it in controlled conditions. And then we take some part of that process it in some way and it lands on your plate. And cultured meat feels um, alien and scary because it's a different paradigm where you're doing most of the processing steps without using a whole organism that we found and domesticated over thousands of years. We're doing it much, much faster um, and in a way that resembles the manufacturing of so many other things that we produce. Um, and that does feel very different to a lot of people. Right, absolutely. And if we think about consumer perception as a, as a topic, I mean, we don't have a lot to go on, but early studies show that Certain types of consumers, younger consumers, more um, climate aware consumers, actually more Asian consumers tend to be more open to the idea of cultivated meat um, than, yes. for example, certain people in, the, in Europe or the U.S. On the other hand, there's a lot going on in mainstream media that suggests yep. that there are these kind of biases against you know, the technology and, and, and the idea of it in certain cases. So how do you think about consumer perception? I think it's um, consumers don't buy technology. And I think a lot of the narratives, a lot of these consumer studies focus a lot on the technology. And when the way that I think about it is we need to make food, we need to make products, we need to make meats that are so tasty that if they were to land on your plate, you would eat it, you would love it, and you would ask for more. Um, and that is our main way that we're going to change consumer perception. And if there's, if that delicious food is also meeting a need of a particular segment of customers, then that's how we believe we start to gain that consumer acceptance and consumer perception. I think a lot about impossible and how rapidly the idea of genetically modified bacteria producing blood that you add to a bunch of plant-based stuff went from being this radical, wacky, mad science to just boring. 
um, it sort of happened in one leap. It didn't sort of it didn't sort of happen in step by uh, step by step. It was like it was there, and you tried it, and then you maybe tried it a second time, and then it was just kind of on the supermarket shelf, and no one gave it a second look, and <laughs> that was that. Uh, I suspect we're going to see a very very similar thing over the next couple of years in culture. That's going to be just it's going to be boring faster than we'd like it to be and the technology is not going to be very interesting or entertaining for very long so it's interesting that you mentioned impossible foods today because it's kind of a special day our date of recording in the impossible foods timeline today i believe according to our common industry friend michael clar um mm-hmm. is exactly seven years ago to the day that the first public photo of an impossible foods burger was shared online by none other than New York-based Momofuku chef and owner Dave Chang, who who shared it and said, today I tasted the future. I can't really comprehend its impact quite yet. I think it might change the whole game. And here we are sitting here seven years later. It's there's impossible foods in my supermarket. I use it, you know, once every couple of weeks to make lasagna or what have you. you, you, you cite them what would you take away from how they did it? What do you want to emulate? There's so much they did so well, and there's so many things that I would choose not to repeat. Um, When it comes to Impossible, their marketing, the way they presented the science is the bar. The the way they just, the early marketing that described Heme, the way they presented it, it was just, it's a masterclass in how do you normalize something so wild and so new? Um, they go to market with uh, chefs like Dave Chang and like uh, Tracy Desjardins in San Francisco. Is it, It's such a playbook that's been followed by so many other people. Where I look at Impossible and I think I want to do things very differently to that is when you think about it from a consumer uh, angle, there's not really any selfish driver to purchase Impossible. It's a direct drop-in replacement for beef mints targeted it's so meaty that it sort of has to be eaten by meat eaters and it's like what what is any individual meat eater getting out of incorporating impossible into their diet and so when i think about what i want to do differently to them it's how do we find and how do we really exploit the selfish drivers that are going to get people that love eating meat and want to be eating meat to choose something that's produced far more sustainably selfishly Impossible doesn't have that. There's not really anything in it for me to make my lasagna out of Impossible. In fact, there's reasons not to. It's more expensive. It's a bit of a hard choice because I have to look sort of, I have to make a conscious decision to do something differently than I otherwise want to. Um, and at least in my experience, I just don't feel great after eating it. It sort of has that junk food feel that makes me feel a bit slow and lethargic in a way that beef doesn't. Um, and so there's some reasons not to, but there's really nothing pushing me towards doing it and towards incorporating it into my diet. Interesting. But so how did they get the buy-in in the first place? Their narrative, along with Beyond and a lot of the alternative meat companies, was a really simple one, which was if you can make something which you can put next to the traditional meat version and a meat eater can't tell the difference, um, then you have access to the full size of that market. I don't know how this plays out over the long term. Um, if it was half the price, I think that that equation could be different. Um, but meat is so artificially cheap um, through direct subsidy and not paying for the full environmental cost that it's very hard to see, even with a, a almost entirely plant-based product, how do you get cheap enough to be the cheapest option on the shelf um, with the technology that we have today and the market dynamics that we have today? 
And so I think the narrative makes a lot of sense. Um, it hasn't played out the way that that early team would have liked it to play out from what I've seen and sort of what I've heard through the grapevine. Absolutely. I also think that for me, there's a narrative that played out as well around technology and kind of at the end of the day, you know, in another interview, we we're saying, you know, food is not tech, food is food. Yes. And, and yes. so that's, that's a big kind of sticky point for where, where we go from here. And, and it's sort of really interesting to hear you say that you think there are going to be these kind of blends and kind of these, these new formats, because I do feel that I'm starting to hear that more from different players across the different pillars. So not just in cultivated, but in plant-based and potentially in fermentation. I was going to add one of my friends um, who you may know, Michael Fox from Fable. Um, he course, yeah. uh, gave me a call not too long ago and he said, um, hey, I've been thinking and reading a lot. And um, when I think about where companies like a lot of the big plant-based companies have struggled, it's that inherently when you're introducing a new product, it is more expensive. Um, it, it's more costly than the incumbent offerings. Um, and so which customer segments are going to be willing to pay that premium? And generally, at least in places like the US, they tend to be health-driven, shop at uh, Whole Foods, looking for organic, looking for the kind of mm-hmm. um, the premium that comes from being a simple, healthy, nourishing product. And if you look at companies like Beyond and Impossible, especially, um, they were kind of at the other end of that spectrum. They were junk food um, in many ways. They were pitching themselves as burgers. They were um, not the sort of thing that if you're eating a predominantly vegan, uh, not even vegan, sort of whole food organic diet, that that's going to meet and match that. Um, and so I think that's another that's another lens in question, which is sort of like, how do you position, how do you start to introduce products in the first few years of your business that do get adopted by those premium grocery co- uh, consumers that are looking for things which are, you know, clean label, short ingredient list, or adding some kind of nutritional benefit to their lifestyle. Um, and that's a very, sure. very different problem and one that Impossible and Beyond didn't address and whether it would have changed their trajectory, um, who knows? Yeah, but I guess what you're talking about is something that I think the whole the industry as a whole is struggling with, which is um, I don't know that anyone did proper consumer segmentation because if you look at you know a chain like I don't know Slutty Vegan, which is absolutely yes. going gangbusters in the U.S. and they're using Impossible Patties and they're kind of a junk food forward, you know, no apologies, yep. delicious, gooey. Um, yummy burgers that you crave, that's working. But then if you look at the shopper at Whole Foods, they're probably looking for what, you know, your friend Michael at Fable is doing, which is, you know, Whole Foods mushroom-based, you know, low perception of processing, right? Yes. But I think that maybe we need to get away from every product needs to meet every need. I definitely agree with that. And I think that's been a big part of how I think about it. It's if we're, when I think about the type of company that we're building, I don't see how you create scaled behavior change with one or two hero products. Um, And so implicitly what you're doing if you're replicating a meat that already exists is you're taking an animal which has this very versatile range of uses and you're trying to capture this enormous amount of versatility and all of the inconveniences we sort of worked around over years into a single product. 
and you have to make compromises to do that. And those compromises reduce that versatility and reduce the quality of that experience. Um, and so you're trying to satisfy all of those, all possible different markets. I have a belief, which will be very much tested over the next couple of years, that we're going to, as a company, create behavior change by having many products in kind of mega niches. Um, so really serving unmet needs and kind of copying and pasting this formula of identifying, that, identifying an unmet need, spinning that up in the same factory, and then serving what appears to be a relatively small market, but having economies of scale across product lines. Um, so it's a entirely untested. <laughs> Sure. No, that's super interesting. But what do you mean by mega niche? So one example is like um, uh, iron, iron availability. Um, if you talk to yeah. basically anyone, um, I have a couple of friends who are dealing with this now, um, where they're having to go for iron infusions for various reasons. Um, so if you go to the doctor, you get a blood test, they say your iron's low. Usually the first thing you do is you go to the supermarket, and you buy five steaks and you have a steak every night. Uh, I know a number of um, athletes, serious amateurs and professionals that have had low iron or struggled to maintain iron levels and hemocrit levels and they have eaten lots of beef to try to do that so and there's a couple of other reasons why other reasons why you'd also be eating beef in all of those cases mm. you're looking for a product which has the perception of high bioavailable iron and doesn't have the downsides of either iron infusion or iron pills in that case producing a product that has 10 times the bioavailable iron of beef suddenly you've got this reasonably large range of consumers that have this common shared need, which is lots of bioavailable iron um, coming from different sources that you're moving away from beef consumption um, in a very specific scenario. So those are the types of things that we're sort of like the types of threads that we're very deliberately pulling at. That's super interesting. And I actually am one of those people that gets iron infusions. <laughs> There's a lot of you. There's a lot of people that get iron infusions. <laughs> I've definitely had to struggle because um, I do follow a plant-based diet. Um, when I gave birth, I uh, I had to go to hospital because um, I basically lost too much um, too much iron post-birth, and I immediately needed a, a transfusion. Sort of like let's say like four wow. or five days after going home, and you know nobody. That wasn't the first thing that people thought, but but certainly very interesting. So that's a mega niche, AI, very interesting. So it's funny, I mean, quite a few times you've brought up, brought up nutrition as a driver here. And if we talk about again, you know, who's going to Whole Foods and things like that, I mean, there is this kind of health motivation that I guess this, this is a question that, that exists that floats around the cultivated discussion, right? Because there is this idea that eating more plants, right, and eating less red meat and certain types of processed meat makes you healthier. And there is there are studies, yep. there's a lot of research to show this. So the idea of reducing animal foods across your diet is 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 definitely one that aligns with also being healthier. And yet cultivated cellular agriculture and cultivated meat is is kind of the idea of keeping those foods in our diets, just changing the production method and the production cost to society and the environment. So where do we think about meat and health and meat consumption and health? I mean, you said you're not a vegan, you're not a vegetarian. I mean, do you believe that we should be eating more plants still for health? I'm not sure about for health reasons. And this is, I think nutrition is such a complex field with so many interrelated variables. Annoyingly, there's people that eat nothing but beef, steak, and liver that are very healthy. And there's people that eat nothing but raw vegan diets that are very healthy. Um, 
my very personal and exclusively anecdotal experience is I tried to go vegan for about two months and I ended up so abruptly anemic that my doctor told me I needed to change my diet back. Um, and so for whatever reason, um, for whatever reason, a vegan diet worked incredibly poorly for me and I probably could have stuck with it, but it just seemed too difficult. So I think there are ways that you can, there are many people uh, that we have a lot of you know, anecdotal and case evidence of this, many people that have eaten an omnivorous diet for their entire life and been very healthy. Um, there are many people that have eaten omnivorous diets and been very unhealthy. And so I don't think it's as simple as incorporating more or less meat into your diet drives health. Um, my view on this is as a, as a company that is trying to sell to people that don't want to change their diets and are choosing to eat meat in whatever production form, we have both an opportunity and a responsibility to be thoughtful and considered about what is the composition of that meat and how do we ensure it's both enjoyable to eat, but also as healthy as possible? How do we reduce the negative effects? How do we increase the quality, quantity, and availability of nutrients in it uh, to make sure that if it is part of a balanced diet, we're doing the best things that we can to ensure that is driving uh, healthy outcomes and good health for anyone that's consuming it. Um, and I think that is going to become a very rich vein over time. Um, how do we optimize, modify, and alter uh, cultured meat to be the most nourishing substance that you can be you, you can be consuming as a protein uh, or an animal protein at the very least? The meat industry, I'm sure, is screaming at me right now and saying, no, meat <laughs> is already a superfood. You don't need to change anything. Um, and to that I say, well, let's find out. <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? Because if I, if I go back to the conversation around uh, speaking of, you know, superfood, um, I was talking to someone in seafood and they were saying, well, somebody might want all the nutrition from fish, but not maybe the fishy smell for some people yes. that's off-putting. So, so then you get to the point of, you know, kind of ultra designing our food, but, but again, then you get a, you get back to this idea that it feels as humans, we have some kind of, of, of bias against, which is this kind of idea that food is being altered and processed and sort of is, you know, this idea of we're hardwired to want the natural, but at the same point in time, one thing that we haven't talked about here today is where does cultivated meat sit in terms of the discussion of ethics around consuming meat? Yes, it's a, it's a big question. <laughs> How do you navigate the ethics of it? The, the ethics is a, um, uh, it's, it's a sort of endless, discussion that we could be having the way that I think about it uh well whatever we're producing we need I need to be very considered about where could that be causing harm um, and there's two main ways that I think about that one is in the footprint of production are we producing more waste more emissions consuming more water or land than the food that we're displacing and if the answer to that is yes, then I have a huge problem and I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And so that's something which as we come to market and as we start to understand how consumers are incorporating this, is is it reducing the overall footprint of their diet? And if not, then we need to be very, very uh, cautious about scaling up until we can change that. The other is, are we causing direct harm to animals? And so one of the reasons why uh, we're not, we're very intentionally not doing anything with endangered animals, we're not sampling anything which is critically at risk, um, is through a fear that that would stimulate wildlife crime. Um, the mammoth meatball was deliberately an extinct animal, not an existing, not a live endangered animal for that exact reason. We didn't want to accidentally lead to anyone going and poaching something that's alive um, and uh, just to taste it. So those are the two main things I think about with ethics.
at the end of the day, because we're so focused on targeting meat eaters, the it's all about net reduction um, and having a net reduction on the impact um, or the animal uh, animals used in that uh, total diet that any individual's consuming. Okay, I, I think we need to talk about the mammoth meatball in a second because you you brought it up, and I, I definitely want to discuss this idea of extinct versus you know endangered. But um, at the same point in time, I want to ask you. So I want is it fair to say that you did not start vow from kind of an ethical animal welfare point of view is it, that's not what drove you to this no it's it's always been environmental um okay the and that's i mean i as i said i eat meat so it's not i'm not sort of um you know self like whipping myself and saying no i shouldn't do this this is bad um i think there are ways that meat can be produced ethically and i'm very lucky to live in a country like australia which is predominantly very very high quality extensive production system and the best version of meat production it's impossible to scale it ethically. And when I look at both the environmental and the ethical problems, it comes from the scale and the intensification of animal production. Um, and so then the question is, how do you reduce the growth in total meat consumption? Not displace all of it, but how do you reduce that growth? How do we take a chunk out of the, the meat consumption that would otherwise exist 20 years down the track? What do you think makes you, you, George, uniquely qualified? to take this on? How did, you know, how, how do we draw that line between you realizing, you know, as an Australian where you're eating this very high quality in terms of animal welfare, probably the least harmful of all the harm, right? Um, and yet we're in this climate crisis and you're looking ahead and, and you come up with this idea, like, why you? I, I don't think I am uniquely qualified. I think I had an idea which was different um, at a time where there was a lot of attention on this issue. And it, this could have played out very differently if if Impossible had executed the way they expected and they had displaced beef mints in the way that they had hoped. We wouldn't be relevant. Um, I think I'm very, very lucky that the timing of the approach that I thought would work and the timing of how others have, uh, you know, how the markets and other companies have performed have happened to coincide, um, you know, in a very positive way for Val. Um, but to be honest, I don't think there's anything unique or special about me. Uh, I think the one, the one talent that I, I seem to have is finding people that are far smarter than me to actually do the hard work um, <laughs> while I go on podcasts and they actually do the things to make it real. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a great answer. Um, I will come back to why you, because I, you must have things that are, that are quite unique, but, but let's talk about your team and, and the huge win that they have. Congratulations to them on the execution of the Mammoth Meatball campaign. I, I have to ask, you know, why, how did this idea come up? <laughs> Whose idea was it? What's it been like in the aftermath? Because that was, oh. I mean, you were on Stephen Colbert. I mean, every major <laughs> newspaper, online magazine, blogger wrote about this incredible, I mean, is, is that, you know, what were you trying to do with this idea of bringing an extinct mammoth into a meatball, <laughs> cultivated meatball back to life? The purpose behind this, it was always very transparently a stunt to draw attention to this idea that the meat in the future, the meat we eat in the future doesn't need to be the same as what we eat today. 
And we were throwing around this concept about three years ago. My co-founder, Tim, was like, I think we should do something weird with extinct animals. And he happened to get contacted by a guy called Baz from Wonderman Thompson, who was like, I want to make an extinct animal nugget, dodo nugget. And we were like, great, this is amazing. This works so perfectly for us. Um, and it was kind of on again, off again for a while. And then about a year ago, um, my, uh, we couldn't get the dodo sequence. So my chief scientific officer, James, was like, I think we should do it with mammoth and was able to track down the mammoth sequence and generated the cell line in partnership with the university in Queensland, Australia. And suddenly it was off and running. And it was always, it was always this very small side project for us. We didn't spend a cent on PR. We didn't like, it was working in partner with the guys at Wonderman Thompson and they spent all the money on the marketing side. So we didn't spend a cent ourselves. It was very, very cheap, very opportunistic and just like a fun way to start a conversation. And about two days beforehand, I had this moment of, oh my God, we're about to launch this mammoth meatball and I have no idea how the world's going to react. Um, and so we sort of announced it and I went to bed that night and I woke up to about 200 text messages and it was just everywhere by the morning. Um, and so there was something that certainly I didn't expect that level of attention and that level of resonance, but there was, there was something that has really captured the imagination of so many people of like new technology means that old things that we haven't been able to try can suddenly exist again. What has been very entertaining is watching uh, and seeing the evolution of the criticism of it. Um, and, you know, the main criticism is like, this is a marketing stunt. And I see that, I'm like, yes, that's correct. <laughs> it's absolutely a marketing stunt. That was very, very much the plan. Um, uh, and then the other one is, oh, but this undermines this narrative of cultured meat being exactly the same as we eat today. And it's like, that's, that was also part of the plan. And so it's been, it's been very entertaining to watch the evolution of it. I had no expectations. I thought it was going to be less than 1% of what we saw, and I would have been delighted with that. Um, but it's been very, very entertaining to sort of experience what it's like to go viral and to watch the flames sort of stoke and then watch the cycle just sort of turn over and everyone gets back on with their lives. <laughs> um, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun, and it's been very weird. <laughs> There's no doubt the team executed incredibly. I think we had a conversation about it after after it came out. And, you know, you told me I, I really wanted everyone to be talking about cultivated meat and, and to some extent, yeah. to, to very much an extent that that worked. But I mean, the it's I feel that it, it still was another example of how we as humans, on one hand, were amazed by what technology can do. And on the other hand, this sort of like this ick factor, right? And this kind of you know, there were also people that were asking questions. I, among them, is this responsible? Should Is this what we should be doing? And I actually was worried of about something like this, making uh, people more likely to, to hunt, you know, endangered animals. Or, you know, there's also the kind of idea of like, should we make Jurassic Park happen? Like, what are the ethics of that? And you've answered that in, in an interview with, with myself. But you have somebody like Isaac Schultz at Gizmodo, who's basically his his comment was, I'm skeptical that the stunt is going to sell anyone on cultivated meat. And that's what I really want to ask you. Do you feel long term that this is turning it around for the average person who may have a bias, a neophobic bias against the idea of cultivated meat? Is it bringing them over the line? The goal here was never to turn around people that have that bias. I don't believe okay. that there's anything that we can do or say. You know, I think about um, some members of my family who are just like completely not, not interested. This is never something I would even try. And there's nothing I can do or say that's going to turn those those people around. 
our goal here was to bring culture meat into the mainstream conversation and to normalize the idea that it exists and it can be new and it can be different. And for people that are engaged and are curious and enjoy new technology, it seems like a large number of them are more engaged than previously. And so, and again, this is very much how we're approaching it. That's very different to how really all other companies are approaching it. Our goal is very intentionally to try to polarize people. We're not going to uh, convince people to try something that's so wild and wacky and new and mixing different species together unless it does have that polarity and that curiosity driven as a result of that. Um, and so that was very much how we approached this. Um, but no, I don't think it's going to persuade anyone who wouldn't otherwise try a cultured meat to give it a shot. Uh, I also I, I don't believe it was irresponsible. Um, it was probably not responsible, but I don't think it was irresponsible. No, that's fair. I I see where you're coming from, and I I, I appreciate the the perspective. And I think what's really interesting to me that and that you've said today that I really think is important is this idea that it could open people up to new formats and the idea that you could do different things. And I think I don't think until today I had fully really grasp that that was one of your goals, super, which is really, really great. However, speaking of people who have these biases, <laughs> let's, let's, bring, let's bring it back to something like Italy, thinking about passing a cultivated meat ban. How do you look at that? You know, when you say there's nothing you can do about people that are not going to buy into it, but, but what do we do when it's governments not buying into it? That's a good question. I don't I don't think it's going to be possible for me as a representative of the industry that's being vilified uh, to turn around a position on something like that. I would say, and what I have said in meetings with several representatives of different governments around the world, um, the train has sort of left the station on a lot of these new food technologies that they are either in your supermarket or they're coming very soon. And if you don't choose to be a participant in it, you're going to suffer as a result of it. Um, Italy could have had a cultured meat industry and maintained the credibility and the quality of their existing uh, animal meat industries. It could have been additive for them. Uh, and instead, it's now something that they're closing their door to and companies are still going to do what they're doing. They're just going to do it from the Middle East or Asia or elsewhere around the world. Um, so. The EU in general is a fairly conservative regulatory environment. Um, and I think countries like Italy sticking their fingers in their ears and trying to make something go away like this is going to be more detrimental to them than it's going to help the industries they're trying to defend and protect. Right, because in many ways, Italy has a very similar relationship to beef and meat than Australia in the sense that there's a lot of very high yes. quality meat and that they view it as such. But, but you mentioned Asia and the Middle East, and I'm interested because you're, you know, you've got this big launch coming up in Singapore, which I want you to share more about. Why are these regions seemingly, Israel, Middle East, Singapore, and the rest of Asia, more open to cultivated meat and the, these kind of future food technologies? How do you see that? I think the main driver is coming from their food industry and their food position. Um, certainly Singapore and many of the Middle East and at least the Emirates are net food importers. And so they are looking for ways to bring food production onshore. Um, if you look at a country like the US, um, they, uh, I, they included uh, food technologies and food biomanufacturing as part of their, uh, their national priorities. 
because they're viewing it through the lens of food sovereignty and how do you make sure that you're producing enough uh, protein and enough food to feed your entire population. So I think generally that's the main driver coming from governments and that regulatory acceptance, that regulatory science communication that's coming from those food regulators lays the groundwork for companies to come in and actually market some of these products. Um, but I do think it starts there. It has to start with that commitment from governments as to this is something which is going to be an important part of our food system and we're going to make sure when it does land on your plate it's extremely safe so following up on that singapore has a very special role to play in this industry it's obviously the first country in the world to have um you know regulatory approval for cultivated meat it's the only country in the world where you can purchase some cultivated meat and taste it um, as a consumer uh, what's your relationship like with singapore and, and can you share more around you know more soul and and this the launch plans that have been written about? Yeah, absolutely. So Singapore were, they took a position of regulatory leadership very early on as part of their 30 by 30 of bringing 30% of food production onshore. Um, we talked to the folks at the Singapore Food Agency um, multiple times a week usually. Um, they've been assessing our application for quite a few months. They've seen a lot of additional data um, and I'm spending some time with them in person later this week um, to go through uh, sort of top to tail um, specification. So um, we're getting, I, I, we've had a very, very open and very collaborative relationship with them. And similarly with the Australian regulator and other regulators that we're working with, um, they've always been very clear of why this is a policy priority for them and what it is that matters most to them around uh, safety and how we assure safety. Um, so it's been a very, very positive experience. Um, with launching in Singapore, um, we are as soon as as soon as we get the thumbs up from the regulator, uh, we have stock ready to roll. So it's it's simply a matter of when we get that approval letter is uh, within hopefully uh, less than twenty four hours we'll be uh, having that first launch event and the first time that people can be purchasing um, a cultured meat product that we've produced, um, uh, assuming that adheres to the final specifications. The um, the way we're thinking about the launch is um, it's a cultured quail product and it's really about finding those true fans, finding the people that are really engaged and have been on that journey with us, bringing them together and learning as much as we possibly can about what they love about it, how they talk about it. It's like the first few months for us is going to be about very, very tight knit, very like learning from consumers, learning from customers before we go and try to scale out to heaps of different restaurants and food service. Um, so it'll be lots of small intimate pop-ups all over the city um, which will give you a chance to taste with it. restaurant partners as in this is not going to be a retail product that customers can take home you are going to it's going to be food service only um okay uh it's going to be a food service only product to begin with and that's a very that was a very intentional choice around how do you ha make sure people's first contact and first experience is as positive as possible um, especially when there is a product that has some uh, assumed knowledge around how do you cook it, how do you have a great experience. And again, this is something that Impossible did really, really well early on is their first version was very, very finicky, but they started off with high-end chefs, which could give a really great experience. So it'll be food service only to begin with. Um, we may do a couple of little drops of retail as well to sort of experiment and learn um, around how people are cooking and consuming in their own home. Um, but the goal for us over the first few months is just learn, 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 learn. It's all about learning for us in Singapore and really making sure by the time that we're uh, shifting our attention to a market like Australia or the US, we have a product that you can walk into a bunch of different restaurants and buy and enjoy um, across Singapore. 
and maybe even moving into a little bit of retail as well, at least at the high end. Um, so first up, it's going to be those pop-ups all over the city, um, and it's going to be a matter of following us to see where they uh, where they land. Can you can you give a few more details around format and around timeline? Like, do you have an idea? Are you getting any nods from the regulator around generally? I mean, is it this year? Is it? I definitely have an idea. I definitely can't say I can't say <laughs> <laughs> uh, publicly just yet, um, but uh, keep an eye on uh, keep an eye on our socials is uh, the main thing I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> and what about format? Are you are you sharing anything around product format? I mean, you've said it's it's cultured quail. I mean, is this going to be you know a piece on its own or? We have a few different formats that we've um, we've or we've tested out with a really wide range of different formats, and um, so we'll likely be at least in the early days. It may even be multiple formats in a single meal. Um, so. Again, our goal is to learn as much as possible. So um, you may see multiple different formats. You may see one format, um, but I can't say too much on that either at this stage. I want to keep that a little bit of a surprise. All right, fair enough. So tell me, do you feel that you guys are where you, where you want to be timeline-wise? I mean, you raised almost $50 million last year, the biggest Series A of the, of, of the industry. I assume you've got you know full full bank accounts. It seems like very exciting timeline for regulatory approval in Singapore. Is I mean, is this where you plan to be? I always want things to move faster. Um, I would love to have been um, selling at the end of last year. Um, I would have been the earliest we could have plausibly been ready. Um, okay. But I always want, I'm, I'm relentlessly impatient with timelines. So um, <laughs> nothing's ever quick enough. Nothing's ever soon enough for me. Um, we're in a very like we're in a healthy position. I still would love to, or the more time we spend on market, the more time we spend with customers, um, the better the products are going to be, the better the positioning will become. And so I don't want to. I sort of want to um, be able to use every single possible moment. So, yeah, I'm just desperate to be on market, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm gonna close it out with what What does success look like to you? And do you think about things like legacy? I definitely don't think about legacy. Um, I am, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it's, it, I, what excites me and what's always excited me about Vow is I think we have a chance to really shape and change our food system. Um, and we have a chance to take an experiment with meat in a way that no one else has been able to. And that's always been the thing which excites and inspires me and do so in a way which, you know, creates positive benefit. Um, I think, I think, Val will be successful if we either directly or through inspiring the direction of others are able to shift at least single digit percentage meat consumption away from animals to something else. And, you know, if some other company takes what we're doing and runs with it and executes, as I still feel very, very successful and like very, very proud that we were able to influence the direction of the global food system. So, um, yeah, I think that for me is success and I don't really know there's so many paths that that could that could um, possibly be reached by um, I don't think about I don't really pay much attention to sort of what my role is in that as long as it happens so you're not sitting there going oh I you know in five years I have to have IPO'd or in, in 10 years we need to have no. our products <laughs> on a thousand supermarket shelves or you know like is there a concrete goal for you, a timeline goal, or just this general kind of momentum towards changing how we 
how we produce food and how we think about the way we produce food. It's much more the general momentum. That's really what I I personally thrive on. And I really, uh, I was going to say, I guess I really do clamor for. I really am looking, always looking for that sense of momentum and progress. Um, and if it's Val that's driving that momentum and that change in the food system, I'll be very happy. If we inspire that change in the food, change of momentum in the food system, I'll also be very happy. Um, as long as the change happens, which I believe it has to, uh, if we can make that happen a little bit sooner, I'll be very, very proud of that. Okay, one last bonus question, and then I'm going to let you go. What keeps you up at night? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I've been sleeping very well this past week, so <laughs> apparently nothing. <laughs> um, I think it's it's very, it's the thing which definitely makes me the most um, most nervous and sort of plays on my mind the most is we hire the most ludicrously talented people and it's like, how do I keep them engaged, excited um, and give them the right amount of structure and direction for them to be successful. And so the stuff which is usually keeping me up at night is when there are really great people on the team who I feel like I'm letting down or not letting them achieve their potential um, much more so than anything else is like, we can solve technical problems. We can manage regulatory problems. I'm very confident at this point on safety, um, given how much extensive safety testing we've done. So it's definitely not something which is on my mind at all anymore. Um, and really everything else, it feels like it's solvable as long as we have really great people that are really engaged and excited about, um, doing the work and solving some really hard problems. And so when I feel like I'm not enabling that, that's definitely the thing which keeps me up. Thank you so much, George. That's a, that's an awesome answer. And uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show and I have no doubt it will inspire many. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Green Queen in Conversation is a co-production from Green Queen Media and Cheeky Monkey Productions. This episode was produced by Joanna Bowers and hosted by me, Sonali Figueres. <laughs>